Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Well, I got to tell you, speaking of Denver, speaking of Colorado, I'm actually very relieved that I'm even here because Friday morning, uh, we woke up in Denver at 4.30 in the morning to find a snowdrift up against my, do- my, my sister's um, garage. And so I was shoveling snow on Friday morning, just desperately trying to get out of Colorado because we'd already heard that there was reports of people missing their flights in Denver and being bumped all the way to today, the second. And I'm like, well, how am I possibly going to do everything that needs to be done if I'm stuck in Denver? So it's good to be in this nice, warm room. <laughs> About 85 in here, very tropical. Um, <laughs> But it was difficult to, for us to get here, but we got here as well. And so we've had a great weekend ushering in the new year. Um, yesterday we had um, my wife's birthday. And babe, as hard as you try, you're just never going to catch me. I'm always going to be ahead of you on this one. So we had a great time with her and her birthday, though. Despite it being New Year's, I have this sense of it feeling like we're, we're on the verge of something great and something new. Like a great adventure is in front of me, in front of us. And although it is the beginning of the new year, there just seems to be this great anticipation of getting started on something new. And so today I wanted to talk to you guys about some of the key factors that, that go into starting something new. How do, we, how do we embark into a new adventure, especially with God as the forefront? How do we go into a new year or even a new week or even a new day? keeping God at the forefront of everything that we do. And as a church, we're going through the book of Matthew. And so the book of Matthew, in, ver- in chapter 3, is where we're going to be spending our time here today. And it so it happens that in the, in the chapter 3 of Matthew, there's some very um, strong foundational points that Matthew is starting to convey um, to, his, to the people, to his readers. And they're foundational not only to, to the gospel of Matthew or the good news um, that Matthew is conveying, but they're fundamental to us as people who follow God, to understanding who God is, to understanding and embracing what he's about and what his opinion of us is and what he's actually really inviting us into. And so as we get started, I'd love to pray and we'll jump into Matthew 3. Father, we are, uh, we are grateful people as we sit here um, knowing that we are not only sheltered, but we are on the verge of a brand new year. Lord, we thank you for everything about 2010. We thank you for the hardships that, uh, that have allowed us to draw closer to you. We thank you about the fun times that built relationships with with some of the people in this very room that did not know each other months, uh, months ago. But, Lord, we look and set our eyes towards the future. And that's why we are here, Lord. We ask that you allow us to get a glimpse of your plan. Would you allow us to get a, 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 some confidence-building reassurance that you are involved in all of our efforts? Lord, we give ourselves today so that we can gain guidance from your word and encouragement from you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, in chapter 3, we're going to jump right in. We get introduced to a, a, a man in the Bible in the scripture that is a fairly unique character. His name is John the Baptist. And so let me go ahead and read out of Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6. It'll be up on the screen. For us all to read together. We have a Bible. Technology at its finest. All right, Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who is spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to, to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So you have this character, and I'm going to tell you, 2,000 years ago, people didn't dress like us. They didn't act like us. It was a, very, it was a much more simple culture. This guy would have stood out like a sore thumb, even in those more simple times. This is a guy that wandered around the desert. He had a leather strap around his waist, and he ate bugs. This is not normal even for that society. So John is also labeled as a prophet. Now, in this, in this day and age, the, the voice of a prophet would be God's spokesperson. So God would speak through a prophet so that his people would understand what God's direction and guidance and even warning is. But at this point in time, that voice, the prophetic voice had been silent for a few hundred years. Nobody was talking on behalf of God. It was a very quiet time spiritually in this area. So now all of a sudden, you have a guy who's coming as a prophet. But the weird thing is, is he doesn't have any credibility as a prophet. He doesn't look like anybody. He doesn't blend in. He's a very much of an outspoken character who does not fit in with his surroundings. Another thing about John is important to notice is that John is actually related to Jesus. Jesus' mother Mary was related to, Jesus, or to, to John's mother Elizabeth, and they actually spend time together during their pregnancy. But as John is leading the way, he brings a very powerful message. Early on in the passage, this message is, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear that word repent, there's images that start popcorning up in my mind. One of them is like a powder blue suit preacher from like a Southern Baptist with a Bible. It's just saying, repent from your sins, turn and burn. It's that really old school, you know, punish people to make sure that they, they change their behavior and align it. It's, uh, there, that, there's that idea of repentance being associated with, with damnation. Now, when you take all of the emotion and all of the, the different voices that come about, there is a relationship between repenting and, 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 a, and a fullness of life and even a forgiveness of life. But the message that John has is, is different. It's not one that's driven by anger. It's not one that's driven by punishment. It's one that's driven by God's desire for us to turn around from where we're heading. See, this idea of repentance is this wordplay, this visual play of saying, I want you to repent, which would mean to stop where you're going, turn around 180 degrees, and come back. And God is saying, you guys are going down a path I don't want you to go down. You, you are making decisions based on things that I never intended you to make decisions based on. And I want you desperately to turn around and come home. The best imagery that we have in Scripture of this concept of repentance is found in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is this young man who lives, in, lives with his family, and he gets to a point where he says, Dad, I'm done. I don't want any part of this family anymore. I want my, I want my inheritance now, and why don't you give me my inheritance so that I can get out of here? So, despite this huge insult that this young, this young man levies on his family, he takes his inheritance and walks away, going away from his family, heading to do whatever he wants. Now, after some time, this young man had continued to make bad decision after bad decision. And those bad decisions ended in financial ruin. Those bad decisions ended in, in isolation. Those bad decisions ended in estrangement from all the people who actually cared about him. And in the story of the prodigal son this young man finds himself literally in a pig pen, completely bottomed out, faced with this choice. What do I do? And in this story, the young man confesses those sins, and he turns around and comes home. The interesting thing is the father had been sitting at home the whole time going, where is my son? What is he doing? I hope he's okay. So much so that he would wait and look on the horizon to see if his son would ever return. 
And in the story, the son finally comes to this hill right above the house of his family. And his father sees him on the hillside, and the father runs out, sweeps him up, hugs him, kisses him, welcomes him home, and celebrates the return of his son. That's the, that's the message of repentance that John is speaking about. He's saying God desperately wants you to turn around and come home. Come home to the things that are of most value. And the interesting thing is that the father grabs him without any explanation. All the things that the child had done were of no consequence because what was most important was that he was home. And that's the message of repentance that John the Baptist is saying. It's one driven out of love. It's one driven out of forgiveness. It's unconditional. Now, one of the main things that's, that's involved in this, this act of repentance that John is talking about is confession, this critical part of confessing your sins. Now, for me, when I think about confession, um, one of the things that first pops in my head is that there has to be a certain level of honesty. If I'm going to confess that I've done something wrong, I have to be honest with myself to say, yeah, I've done something wrong. The other day... Um, you guys remember when it was raining, you know, like those epic rains like three weeks ago? I can't speak for your house, but I know that, that our house during rains becomes like this safe haven for all the ants in the whole community. Like they come out of the streets, they come out of the garden, and they find our way into our apartment. And so my wife is particularly um, aware of the ants that come in, and, and we don't want the ants around. So about two weeks ago, I'm coming, I, I wake up in the morning, and I don't spend a lot of downtime in the morning. I'm like, get up, get going, get out the door. And so I wake up, and I go in the kitchen, and something catches my eye out of the corner. I'm like, are you kidding me? And I see this, like, troop of ants coming across the, the countertop and going right into the cabinetry. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to open up that cabinet right now. But I mustered all my courage, and I went over, and I, I opened up the cabinet, and I was just like, oh, you got it, really? It's in the soup cans. It's in the pasta. It's in everything in our cupboard. And I'm like, okay, i got to be somewhere in about 15 minutes. And I was faced with a question, a dilemma. And so I just started cleaning it up, cleaning it up, because I realized that if I didn't do something about it, it wasn't going to go away. All I was going to do is gift my wife with a great surprise when she got up. And so I cleaned it up, and I had to be honest with myself. There's a problem here, and I need to address it. So I cleaned it all up, took all the, the, the napkins that I cleaned up in the, in the surface cleaners, and I was like, okay, I just need to throw this away and get out of here. I opened up the door to the trash can, and I realized that that was, that was just the, the route to the real problem, and the real problem is right down there. And so I sweeped it up and I took it out. Now, I had to be honest that there was a problem in my house. And if I wouldn't have faced that, promise, that, that problem in my house, all I was simply doing was leaving it for some of my family members to discover. If I would have ignored the issue, I simply would have been exposing the rest of my family to it. And I realized that I have ants in my life all over the place. And you do too. We all have these issues in our life that are scurrying around as like big problems that if we don't face, we're not doing ourselves any favors. We're simply forcing our family to deal with them. If we're not honest with ourselves about the things that are, that are wrong in, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we behave, we're not doing anything other than exposing our loved ones to them. And so this act of confession is really being honest with ourselves about the problem at hand. Now John goes on in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So John's message dramatically changes. As he's proclaiming this, repent, confess your sins, and be baptized, there's a group of people that are sitting up on the hillside just going, look at, what are these, cat, what are these guys doing? This is just weird. They got the guy with the leather belt and the locust eater. He's baptizing people in the water. Man, I don't want any part of that. And John's temperament, when he recognizes this, becomes venomous. And he said, who are you guys to sit up there and do nothing? You think that you're going to rest on your ancestry? You think that you can rest on what you've done in the past? Why don't you start living a life that brings about life and fullness and fruit now, rather than sitting up there on your high seat and not doing anything? John becomes very angry and very pointed towards these Pharisees because he knew that they needed this every bit as much as the people who were responding to the message. Now, the interesting thing is these people were the, the social elite. They were the ones that had all the knowledge. They were the ones that, that had power and authority. And you can just imagine all the barriers they had to actually hearing John's message and going down and repenting. But what, 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 what are my fellow you know, religious leaders going to think? What's my family going to do? You know, my whole life is kind of built around this lifestyle. What if I change it? What's gonna, what is that going to mean to my friendships? What's that going to mean to my workplace? What's that going to mean to the way that I, I, I live and I socialize? All these factors, staring them in the face going, I don't know that I can give that up. I don't know that, if I, that I can give that up at all. But John's very clear saying, you got to get off the fence, guys. Are you going to stay up there or are you going to come down with the rest of us? and repent, and be baptized. Now, the interesting thing is we read on in Matthew 3.13, all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. In 3.13, it reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The interesting thing is this, this message of John was about confession. It was about repenting from bad behaviors. It was about turning back to God. But Jesus had no reason to repent. Jesus wasn't heading on a dangerous road. He wasn't living a lifestyle that was destructive to himself and others. He had lived a perfect life. He didn't have any sins to confess. And John's going, wait a minute. You, I can't baptize you. You don't fit, you don't fit the, the bill. You're not consistent with the people that I'm preaching with. And the reason that Jesus said was, I need you to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus knew that he had to be obedient to God. He knew that he had to be obedient to the Father, and more so, he knew that he was coming to lead an entire people into a new existence. And you can only lead somewhere, some people somewhere, if you've gone there before them. And Jesus is saying, if I'm going to lead people to repent and lead them to be baptized, then I need to be the example. I need to be obedient to God and to fulfill this model of what repentance and what forgiveness looks like. And the beautiful thing is that when Jesus did that, his, the, the Spirit of God descends upon him. 
Now, the Spirit of God is no light matter. And I've got like 15 minutes, and there's no way I'm going to explain the Spirit of God to you in the way that, that it, he deserves. But the Spirit of God is, is part of the triune God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in that dynamic, the Spirit is where the power and the connection comes to, in, in that dynamic. It's how, it's how God comforts Jesus. It's how God empowers Jesus. It's how that relationship is tied together. And now all of a sudden, this Spirit is descending upon Jesus so that Jesus can have the power and the connection to God the way that God has promised all of us. The interesting thing is that Spirit is, is, a, is a powerful Spirit. It's the Spirit that, that, that created the world. It's the Spirit that rose people from the dead. It's the Spirit that breathed life into God's Word. It's the spirit that transforms society, and it's the spirit that is available to all of us. And right after that spirit, something supernatural happened. A voice from heaven. The spirit descends on Jesus, and all of a sudden, God's voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. The interesting thing is when you think about it in your mind, the amazing things that Jesus did, and you take an inventory of, oh, all the, all the amazing things that Jesus did in his life. None of them had happened yet. He hadn't done anything miraculous yet. He hadn't healed anybody from sight. He hasn't fed 5,000 on, on the mountain. He hasn't raised anybody from dead. He hasn't done anything. But God's voice is saying, this is my son, and I'm well pleased in him. Interesting enough, this marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and he had the endorsement of God the Father to go and do the things that he was born to do. And it was the start of his ministry. Now this story is, is over 2,000 years old. But yet it rings true for us every single day. The scenario that people were being met with down there on the Jordan River is the scenario that each and every one of us is faced with every day. This isn't a one-time event of saying, I'm going to repent for my sins right now, and I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to be good. I'm going to cash that ticket, and I'm good to go. This is a matter of realizing that this is the lifestyle that is available to us. Is each and every day waking up and saying, am I going to be aware of the areas in my life that I need to confess? Am I going to receive the power from the Holy Spirit, and am I going to go knowing that my Father is pleased with me? Now, there's some interesting things in that dynamic that we need to be really clear on. The first one was tied into the warning of John to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You need to make up your mind. You need to figure out if you're going to sit on your high seat and not engage in all the, all the power and all the excitement that's going on down here, or are you going to answer the call and start this new adventure? We all know that there are definitely reasons why it's difficult to follow God in this life. We just came off the holiday season. Do you have any idea how busy it is? I don't have time for anything else. I don't have time. It's all I can do to just kind of keep my, my social schedule in order. You want me to actually spend some quality time with God? I, that's just too much time. I've got all these other obligations. All these barriers come up as to why we are prone to not engage in that one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. I can remember early on in my uh, in my return to, to God, I could, you could say. I was 26 years old. I'd been kind of running my own thing, and, and I got to a point where I was just kind of tired with it. And one of the things that God did for me that I'm so thankful of right now is he gave me this little picture, this word picture, 
early on, and it was, Lo, there are things that I want you to stop doing. And I want you to replace them with things I want you to start doing. I want you to stop certain things that are, that are holding you back. I want you to stop certain things that are stunting your growth. I want you to stop certain things that are, that are hurting you and causing you harm. And I want you to start doing some things that are going to start to repair the things that are broken in you. And that you can start doing that will start to bring about fullness of life. Um, early on in that process, I realized that I was hanging out with people that were bad influences. And so I'm like, well, how do, you, how do you engage and meet new influences? How does that happen? It's so difficult to build good relationships. And as a 26-year-old guy, I was like, I have no idea. I meet everyone at work or at the bar. That's where the whole social thing is. And so all of a sudden, I realized, well, maybe the church is something that I can do. And so I really awkwardly, you, you guys know that feeling, that awkward feeling when you walk into a new church for the first time, you're like, I know nobody here. I have no idea what this is even about. So I do that, and I'm sitting around a table with 15 other people that are kind of young adults. And we're talking about, well, what does it look like to have like, a, a support structure, you know, some, some people that are like-minded? And I looked across, and at this point in time, I'm a businessman. I got suits and ties on. I go to work. I'm, I'm you know, running you know, pretty hard and in the sales community. And, but on this particular day, I was, in, I, was in, I was in workout gear. And across from me, I saw this other guy who was sharply dressed with his tie. And I'm like, okay, that's probably somebody that's somewhat like me. So I talked to him afterwards. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a small group. I, what is it, like a Bible study? Is that what you're talking about? And he goes, yeah, I've got a group of guys that meets on Wednesdays. Why don't you come over? Now, he's looking at me and seeing a guy in T-shirt and gym shorts and tennis shoes. And I'm looking at him and seeing a guy in a business suit. Well, I walked in that, that Wednesday night in my suit, and I saw a bunch of guys in hoodies, ripped jeans, and tennis shoes. And I think the oldest one was 19. I'm like, I'm 26, and I'm going to be hanging out with a bunch of teenagers. This is great. But I had seen him, and he had seen me, and he said, this would probably be a good fit. And in, in God's divine orchestrating, it was perfect for me because these young guys had a passion for life. And these young guys were not going to settle for just what church is about. They wanted to push authority. They wanted to challenge using God's word. And in those two years that I was with those guys, I really blossomed. And I stopped hanging out with a certain influential group, and I started hanging out with these guys. Now, I know I'm not unique in that. I know that every single person in this room has something on a daily basis that they could afford to stop doing and another that they could start doing. It's a daily thing for me. Daily, I see ants running around in my life. Every day, I'm like, why do I do that? Why do I respond in certain situations? Some of the things that I, that I deal with most of the time is this idea of entitlement. What's this year going to bring for me? Was 2011 going to be a little bit better than 2010? 2010 had a lot of disappointment, and 2011 better be, better be a little bit more fulfilling for me. And we need to stop thinking about what does this life have for me? Because all it's doing is going to set us up for being disappointed. And we need to start thinking, what am I going to give to this year? What am I going to give to the people around me? What am I going to give to my family? Stop expecting what other people are going to offer me and start giving myself so that others can, can, can have the year that, that they truly want. I need to stop bickering. I know each and every day there are opportunities for me to bicker. I talked to Christine earlier this week, and I asked her, I go, babe, can I kind of talk about some of the areas that we bicker? I mean, I know it's kind of you know, a sensitive subject, and we don't want to you know, make people think that we've got like a bad marriage. But in a year and a half, as great as our marriage is, there's areas where we bicker. Just on New Year's Eve, we were coming, uh, we were coming back from Colorado, and both of us were exhausted. We didn't want another thing to do. And I just asked her, I go, so what do you want to do for New Year's Eve? And she's like, well, I haven't heard much of anything. I'm like, well... I heard of a party down in Mission Viejo, 
And, and the response was, well, if we had to go to Mission Viejo, I'd rather just stay home. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. What if I want to go to Mission Viejo? And in that moment, a brief moment in time, I was faced with this opportunity to either throw my hands up and say, well, why do we just have to stay home? Why can't we go down and hang out with my friends? And I realized I didn't even want to go down there. I wanted to stay home the whole time. But it was those moments that we're all faced with, especially those, who are, those of us who are married or in a relationship, to where we have the opportunity to either bicker or just to yield and say, I want to do what's best for my wife. I want to do what's best for my husband. I don't want to set up walls and camps and, and brawl until somebody gets their own way. Why can't we just humble ourselves so that the other person that we care about most in this world knows that they're the priority in our lives? I know worrying is a big deal. And I know many of you worry. We spend so much time wondering, well, how is this going to resolve itself? How, is, how are the taxes going to come out? How, how are we going to deal with the, our, our kids' tuition? How are we going to deal with, oh, that thing at work? I don't know how that's going to work out. And in my opinion, worry is simply just a beacon for us to stop what we're doing and turn back towards God and say, why am I spending so much energy worrying about it when I have no power to change it? Maybe, just maybe, it's a reminder for us to go spend time with the guy the God who has the total power to change it. There's no, there's no rationale in, in worrying about something. It's a beacon for us to turn back to God. I need to stop being angry about the things in my life. The things that I look down and I go, why did this happen to me? That's not fair. This needs to, somebody needs to pay for that. And I need to turn back and say, maybe there's an opportunity in this. Maybe in my disappointment, God wants to show me that there is something else on the horizon. Maybe he closed the door because he's got a better plan for me. Companionship, I think, is a big one for for many people. They're saying that more and more affairs are starting because of people reconnecting with old flings on Facebook. This great tool, this wonderful thing, where people can go and reconnect with old acquaintances, is resulting in affair after affair after affair. And fundamentally, I believe it's because people are wired for a sense of companionship. People want a sense of excitement about about an attraction or a connection with somebody from the opposite sex. And the reality is all of those false pursuits, sexually perverse pursuits, come at the expense of the relationship with the people that are closest to us. And God all along has been saying, if you come home to me, I'll fill it. I'll take care of all those needs. I'll take care of all that emptiness if you would just turn away from where you're heading and come home. And lastly, I have a, I've always had a big issue with my identity. And for years, especially through my teenage years and into my 20s, um, slowly but surely I found out that I would medicate. I would, I would try to cope with my uneasiness about myself. And it got so bad that um, in that same time period when I was working sales, that I would, I would drink a six-pack of beer before I even go out. And it was because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I had to do something to get past it so I could go out and function in society. And my hunch is that that's probably not too dissimilar from a lot of the people here. How many things that we, do we do to try to medicate or to build ourselves up to try to define, that define us in life? It's like what Tim was talking about. Who are you? I'm a musician. No, no, you're not. I'm a, no, you're not. But so many of us try to medicate our way to finding our identity. And so I got to a point where it was New Year's 2000. 2000 going into 2001. And I said, I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm going to see if I can. 
if, if I'm going to repent, I'm going to repent on the biggest stage possible. I'm not going to drink on the biggest drinking night of the year. And so I showed up at my buddy's house, and I'm like, I'm not drinking alcohol at all. And so I grabbed a water bottle, and I was pounding water at like a record pace. It was like the uneasiness was just like, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? What's going on? I mean, I spent half the time in the kitchen filling my water bottle, and the other half of the time in the bathroom making sure that I... But anyway, at one point in time late in the night, I had a buddy that kind of stumbled up me, stumbled up me. He's like, hey, man, you need to have a beer with us. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And like after the third and fourth time, I'm like, no, I'm good. He finally came up, and he's like, why aren't you drinking? You need to drink with us. And I was like, hey. And I just stared him in the eyes, and I said... Am I not fun to be around right now? Are you telling me that I am not fun enough for you to be around? And he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. And to me, that was when it clicked. I'm fun to be around. And it has nothing to do with what I'm putting in my body. It has everything to do with me just being confident that by being obedient and not drinking that night, God said, I'm going to show you another way. I'm going to show you a new reality. And from that point on, I've... I've been able to, 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 in those moments of uncomfort and discomfort, to be able to step back and say, this is not about who I'm not. I need to rest on who I am. And I'm a child of God. And that identity was a big deal. Now, the truth is, we are faced with these opportunities to repent and deal with the issues in our life every single day. But it can be overwhelming. It can be a daunting task. And the good news is that God doesn't intend at all for us to handle that task on our own. He doesn't say, I want you to go repent from your sins, and I want you to turn towards me. And by the way, when you get it all figured out, then then we can talk. It's interesting that as soon as Jesus came up from the water, the first thing that he was given was God's own spirit. And God's spirit has all the power and comfort and reassurance and guidance that we could ever want. And God's saying, that is your reality as well. Every single person in this room, that's your reality, that God's spirit is available to you. It has the power to face the challenges. You think about the challenges that are pressing on you right now. And God's saying, Do not, don't you dare go into that challenge without my power. You will fail miserably and you will get crushed, but invite me into it. It gives us comfort when we had heartache. Now, I've been able to walk through life with most of the people in this room. But even if I didn't know a single one of you, I would like for one of you to stand up and say, you know, this year was easy. I didn't have any challenges. It was kind of, Kind of cruise control all year. I didn't have any disappointments. I didn't have any tragedies in our life. Think about the tragedies that you faced this year. And I know a lot of you. And my heart has been, has been heavy for you guys all year. How many estranged children? How many lost jobs? How many medical scares? How many deaths in the family? God's saying, I don't want you to go through that by yourself. I'm sending my spirit so, that you can, so I can be with you in that. So I can, draw, I can be the source of your comfort and your reassurance. God's spirit also directs us in our daily lives. I have this story. On, uh, I have a Wednesday night group, and there's several of us that are in this room. And one of the young men in our group, he's been, started to come, he's been coming for a year now. And his friends are starting to ask him questions like, what is the deal with this whole church thing? Why are you doing it? Like, you're, meet, you're going on Sundays. You're meeting during the week. I mean, does it, does it really work? Can, can I come? And so he invites his friend to come. And the first three weeks, this guy kind of sat in the corner, and he was just kind of like, what are these people talking about? But then about week four, posture softened, and he started to re- respond in some of the questions that we were talking about. And one of the weeks right before Christmas, he comes to me, he goes, 
I just don't understand this whole prayer thing. So you're telling me that if I got something going on, I can just talk to God about it. I don't have to like do anything more. I can just talk to him about it. I don't have to like go to a counselor or anything. And I'm like, you know, you can just talk right to God. And he's like, okay, because I got some problems and I just don't know how to do it. I get to these breaking points. I'm like, just in those moments, pause and talk to God. And he goes, really? And I'm like, just do it. So I heard about a week and a half ago that this, this guy was having this huge problem with his daughter. And his daughter was chasing after these guys and living this lifestyle that, that was not healthy for her. And there, I mean, think about it, guys. If you have a daughter, I mean, you just, like, there's this yelling match of like, how dare you? You don't do this. You're defying me. And she's like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'll date whoever I want. I'm not, I'm out of here. And she storms out of the house. And that moment of silence, he just sits there and goes, God, I can't do this. What am I supposed to do? And so he musters all the, all the strength he could, and the first thing he does is he sends a text to his daughter, and he simply says, babe, this is not God's desire for your life. And he went to bed. Next morning, he ends up that she didn't, she didn't run off and spend, spend the night somewhere else. She had snuck back in, and she comes up next to him on the couch, kind of nestles in up against his shoulder, and goes, Dad, I know this isn't God's will for my life, but I don't know how to find it. And after like an hour conversation of them like having this beautiful dad and, and daughter moment, he like runs to his f- cell phone and he, he writes the other guy in our group and he goes, are you kidding me? And that's what God does. Is he promises through his spirit to say, whatever you're overwhelmed with right now, pause and come back to me. Don't go after that on your own because it's a fool's game and you will get crushed. Turn back, come home. Repent and come home because I want to handle it for you. Last thing that happens in chapter 3 after this Holy Spirit descends on, on Jesus like a dove is this voice that comes from heaven and says, this is my son and I'm well pleased in him. Now, I don't have to go very far to ask everyone in the room. Either if your father let you down, or if you have a firsthand witness of a father who left you, let you down. It's easy for us to see how a father can damage the life of a child. The power that a father has into the life of their children. And I got I to be honest with you, even the best dads in this world leave their kids with certain resentment. Think about the absence of a father. What do we do to compensate for that? Where, where do we overcompensate in our behavior to try to somehow find somebody to approve of me? I just wish I had a dad that would approve of me. I just wish I had a dad that, that was proud of me. I just wish I had a dad that was involved in my life. God's saying, I'm that dad. I'm the dad that you can turn to in anything. And better yet, it has nothing to do with what you've done. Me being pleased in you has nothing to do with what you've done, and it has nothing to do with what you do. It is solely based on you being my child. You are God's child, and he is pleased with you. You are God's child, and he is pleased with you. You are God's children, and he is pleased with you. 
You are children of God, and he is pleased with you. Doesn't matter what you do. This is not an earned love. This is, a, this is where it starts. This, is, this love is not a goal of what we do. It's where it starts. What we do starts with knowing that God is our dad and he is proud of us. I realize that most of us in the room has never really received a blessing from a father. So I want to give you guys an opportunity. As best as I can, I want to be God's spokesperson into your life. If you need the Father's blessing, I invite you to stand. If you need more power in 2011 that comes from God, I want you to stand. If you need reassurance that you are a child of God, I want you to stand. If you need to be reassured that your value is not conditional upon some sort of behavior, I want you to stand. If you need to know that you are are precious and perfectly made in God's image, I want you to stand. You are the children of God. You are his sons. You are his daughters. His love for you is more than you could ever imagine, and it far exceeds the love that you have for yourself. The joy he has for you far exceeds any joy that you've ever experienced on this earth earth. The dreams he has for you far exceed any dreams that you could ever imagine because you are his children. You are his sons and you are his daughters. Your lives can always be lived knowing that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the savior of the world did it for you each and every one of you. And that's where our ministry starts. Imagine the change and transformation that we could carry out in our community if we simply tapped into the power and the approval of God. He has great plans for you. He has powerful plans for you. And his desire to see you enjoy life far exceeds your wildest imagination. Pray with me. Dad, you are the only thing we can hold on to. And my prayer for all of us standing here today, Lord, is that we would repent daily, turning from our way and erring on the side of turning towards you. God, show yourself faithful in that space as we faithfully give up what we might think is best for us so that we can experience what you have designed for us. Protect your kids, Lord. Give them reassurance in each and every day that they are not alone, that they have the direction of a God that knows the perfect path for them and that they have the power to endure and the power to change the world that they live in on your behalf. We pray all these things in the powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. 
For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.